podcast that explores the logic behind physiological birth practices and is a production of the Indie Birth Association and IndieBirth.com. No material on this podcast should be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Margot Blackstone here, and welcome to this episode of Well Actually, a podcast that I put out through IndieBirth. And I am very excited to have another guest here today on the podcast with me, Kimberly Ann Johnson. So welcome, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to to hop on here with me. Um, It was really uh, an interesting synchronicity with uh, someone passed your name along to me and said, Hey, you should really check out this book that is coming out that just came out and it's on the fourth trimester. And this woman's amazing and check out her website. And so I did. And as I was looking at your website, which is magamama.com, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, I actually was looking at this last week for a totally different reason. Oh, wow. Um, I've been doing a lot of like exploration around different, um, sexuality topics and um that sort of thing and so your website popped up for me in like a unrelated but totally related way like my own personal interest and so I was like this is meant to be I've got to see if this awesome woman will join me on the podcast and share her wisdom so thank you so much for agreeing to do this and and being here today my pleasure I'd love to introduce you with a little bit of your bio and then we'll jump right in so Kimberly Ann Johnson is a sexological body worker, somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner, birth doula, and single mom. She specializes in helping women prepare for birth, recover from birth injuries and birth trauma, and heal from sexual trauma. She is the founder of magamama.com, an international holistic women's healthcare resource for expectant and new mothers. She is the co-founder of the Stream School for Postpartum Care where she trains birth professionals, yoga teachers, somatic therapists, and body workers to help women prepare for birth and recover from birth. And she's the author of The Fourth Trimester, A Postpartum Guide to Healing Your Body, Balancing Your Emotions, and Restoring Your Vitality, published by Shambhala Press in December 2017. So a brand new book you've birthed. Yes. Which is awesome and amazing. And I read the whole thing yesterday. I can't believe you read it in one day. Um, I mean, it's just really incredible. Like, like I said, when someone sent along um, your information, I think they sent along a, bo- a link to the book. Um, I my first thought was, "Oh my God, someone finally wrote the book!" Like, wonderful. Like, what's mm. we've we've been waiting for this, and so thank you for putting in. I'm sure the immense amount of time that it it took to produce such a really well thought out and well crafted um, book for us, for us all to now enjoy. So you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Yes. Um, yeah. I was thinking, you know, last night after I had finished reading it and um, as I was getting ready for bed, I was trying to think like, what, what do I want to say about this? And of course I don't want to say too much. I want to hear from you, but um, you know, I would describe it as like the, the book that I, like I said, that I've been waiting for someone to write. Like if I could have like short ordered a book on the postpartum that covered Mm. everything and more than I was hoping for, uh, this would be it. So I just loved that you covered all the, all the stuff that, you know, I try to 
work with with my clients and that you know indie birth really cares about um and then you also added so many cool um you know so much cool specialty knowledge with the the work that you do so i would just love to hear from you like what was the process like for writing this book i guess <laughs> like how did how yeah did the process of writing the book um well first of all i you know, I had my own life experience, right, which was very surprising for me. And um, in general, the places in my life that have been the biggest challenges have then become my offerings in the world. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really set out to write a book, but I was teaching yoga. I was living in Brazil and somebody came to take class at my studio and she really loved my classes and we became really good friends and she was a, she's a writer and she um, basically as she learned more about my experience and what I was learning and doing, she's like, you got to write a book about this. And, um, and I'm like, I, how can I write a book? Like, look at my life. Like I, I can't do that. Like I'm so busy already. And how can I make space to do that? And she's like, She's, she's kind of a shaman herself and she's just kind of looking at me like, look, surrender, surrender, babe, because like, this is your, it's your thing, you know, like, like you can try to bat this away, but it's not going to go away. Mm -hmm. So she was such a champion of the project because I'm a very, uh, circular creative, um, you know, when I turned in my first draft, my favorite comment on the first draft was, it seems there's a problem with linear thinking. And I just burst out laughing because I'm like, well, I never tried to tell anybody that that was my strong suit. So um, she really helped me do the proposal, find a table of content structure, um, really figure out how all of this knowledge and all of this inquiry would become a book. Yeah. And that's a big process. It's a book is really a lot less about writing per se, especially when it's narrative nonfiction than it is about selecting what is most useful for an audience. And I think, you know, I, I had written a lot. I'd written a lot of, you know, even award-winning pieces in college, but it had all, it hadn't been very much of my own personal narrative. So blending memoir with case studies with information uh, was something that I had to learn how to do. And then, you know, there was a year that it just, the whole proposal just sat in a drawer because I went to two people that were kind of like my ideal agent and my ideal publisher. And it got to the last round with both of them. And then they, they were like, it's not the right project for them for different reasons. So I just put it away and everyone's like, build your platform. And so then yeah, I was in a drawer for probably eight months, a, a you know, proverbial drawer, a 10 months, something like that. And then I had a tarot reading and the woman was like, there's some project that's like, not like what's going on, you know? And I said, oh, well, I have this book approach. She's like, you got to send that out this week, like do it this week. And I sent it. And that week I had a book deal. That's amazing. Yeah. And then after that, it was two years from that time. So, wow. um, it, you know, there's just so much to learn in writing a book that I always say, like, I would birth five more kids before I write another book. Like, I wouldn't raise five more, but I would birth five more because the learning curve was just outrageously steep in every way. Like, I, as a writer, you pay the illustrator, 
you direct the illustrator. So in a way, you're kind of like an art director. And then the placement of the imagery and labeling of imagery and everything. I'm not, a, I'm not good at um, Photoshop or anything like that. So I would have in my mind how I wanted it to be, but then to articulate that and have it become something is a whole other thing. And the book is really bridging so many so many types of expertise together because my uh, objective was, okay, the average person's not going to go write, read like anatomy of the female pelvis, right? Like that's just too boring and too dry. And probably most people can't look at an anatomical drawing if that's not what they're used to looking at. But I'm like, but everybody really does need to know just basic structural landmarks. What is the pelvic floor? So how can I include that information in a way that, people will want to read and it won't just be, it'll be included. You know, I really wanted to bring together, there's, there's some great books on postpartum that just never got much acclaim. You know, Aviva Ram's book is great. Robin Lim's book is great. Yep. Um, but what they, well, first of all, Robin's is, you know, from the early nineties. So there's in her book, it cracks me up because she's telling women they need to wait more than three weeks to have sex. So apparently at that time where she was, people were just rearing to go after having a baby, whereas that's really not what's going on these days. Yeah. So there were some updates that needed to happen in terms of intimacy, dialogue, and sexuality. And um, yeah, so I just really wanted to write the book that I, I needed when I was going through that time. Totally. And yeah, you know, I... I thought that would be a fun thing to just, you know, even at least mention. I, I did a postpartum workshop, um, maybe either one or two locally here last year, <clears throat> which was trying to talk about these things in sort of an hour and a half and then have people do different worksheets that I had made up and um, just have them start these conversations. Uh, although, but your appendix is amazing with the planning sheets. And I was like, oh man, this is a thousand times better than what I came up with. Um, where was I going with that? Oh, so at these workshops, I, you know, brought along my books that were on the postpartum, you know, I have a postpartum photography book that I think is really beautiful. And, um, women really love, especially when I'm at table events, like it'll be a birth event, but everyone wants to look at the postpartum photo book. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And yeah, I don't have a copy of Robin Lynn's actually, but I know Marin really loves that one. And then Aviva Rams is the one that I give out to people. Um, yeah when they want to read in preparation before that time. Um, but yeah, I feel like yours is just so comprehensive. And like you said, weaves together so many different um, like tendrils of um, wisdom and it's really incredible. So it's funny to hear you say that the, the linear thinking was um, not your strong suit. Cause as I was reading, I was thinking like, wow, I want to, you know, a separate at a separate time, I'd love to pick your brain about um, how you organize this book so well because it's so much information and it felt like a really good flow and oh um, it felt really well organized to me so yay well I had help and for anyone who wants to write a book I mean if I write another one it's definitely I'm going to do it differently and I I'm going to have the same editor so what happened was um, the person who was my original champion who helped me with my proposal whose name is Joelle Hahn She's the Brooklyn book doctor. She, um, she had a job. When I got my deal, she already had a ghostwriting job for the whole year. And I was just like, damn, because she's just so, so good, you know? And I, so I had to go looking for another editor. And 
and I, you know, like anything, I had an idealized idea and I, an expectation of what you think a relationship with an editor is going to be like. And I think it's still possible to have that. But um, Joelle was really special because she's already a yoga teacher and she already like, she does, she, she knew my daughter. She saw where I lived. She just got the whole thing. Um, so it's really important to have somebody that's there with you from start to finish because it's a very solitary process and you can't really think about much else during the time that you're doing it. It's constantly hanging over your head. You know, it's just like this thing that like everything I was doing was like the book, the book, the book, you got to write the chapter, finish the chapter, you know? So, um, yeah, but the organization I really probably can't take much credit at all for because I needed a lot of help with that. Well, whoever is to give be given kudos. Yeah. Um, cool. So do you want to like, just give people a basic sense of what they might expect from reading this book? Like what they might take away or who should read it? Um, I definitely am going to be adding a bunch more copies to my library to give out to my clients. Um, so I'm convinced, but for anyone who's listening, if you want to like tell them who this is for, that'd be awesome. I mean, I think it's for definitely for pregnant women. So really, so who you we all know this, right? Who usually cares about postpartum? People who've already had a shitty postpartum. That's right. who cares about it, right? Like yeah. really, people who didn't think about it, like me, who then had a really difficult time, and then they're like, "Oh, postpartum is important." It's like the biggest challenge ever for birth workers to try to convince their clients to care about the postpartum period because the birth is just looming out there and everyone's like, the birth, the birth, the birth. And, you know, birth can only last two or three days at most, but the postpartum period can last, you know, five or six years. Right. We're not really well taken care of. So, um, you know, most people who are listening to this podcast are already making a birth plan or maybe aren't making a birth plan or are deliberately not making one, but they're still thinking about what they want their birth to be like. But most people aren't spending time thinking about what they want their postpartum time to be like. And in terms of long term, and of course how your postpartum time is, is affected by how your birth went, but uh, it's a huge front end investment to be able to understand what's even needed postpartum and how you could set yourself up so that instead of being depleted, depressed, um, uh, developing an autoimmune disorder that you could actually come out of that time healthier, stronger, more radiant. Uh, so, you know, pregnant women should read. There's a, the whole first part of the book is written for people while they're pregnant to, so they know what they can do to prepare for postpartum. And then, you know, I think birth workers need to know. I mean, I cannot believe, even midwives, like I just was on a mid, midwife show and they're like, yeah, you know, we don't really get trained. We get trained in how to suture. And then just like doctors, their postpartum visit, if they just went by their training, they'd just be looking to see if there's any open wounds. Like they're not trained to evaluate pelvic floor tone. They're not trained to evaluate you know, and now everyone's all stoked about freaking mental health checklists. Who cares? Like that's, that's what we're offering. We're offering, that's like, that's our advanced development is, oh yeah, let's screen people for mental illness. No, let's give people support so they don't develop mental illnesses. Totally. So, um, yeah, I mean, what people can expect is to find 
you know, partially my story. So what, what I went through unexpectedly postpartum having a birth injury, um, learning just like, I really like the chapter on medical realities because I, so much of what I field in terms of questions is people just totally confused. They don't understand their diagnosis. They don't understand how they're feeling. They're not really sure if what they're feeling is scar tissue related, emotional based, um, physiological, biochemical. So it's really a tool that it's not, I'm not encouraging people necessarily to self-diagnose, but I am encouraging people to understand that they can actually feel what's going on. They don't need someone else to tell them what's going on if they have the right information. And then if they were to have somebody else to give them a reflection, to choose somebody that is well-versed in these four domains of health, in biochemistry, in biomechanics, in trauma and emotions, and in scar tissue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, that's something that I felt like I'm really glad you included and didn't sugarcoat. You know, you had a home birth with midwives and, um, and you didn't sugarcoat the fact that you felt like your care was not optimal in the postpartum time, even with midwives. And I feel like that's a thing that we talk a lot about at Indie Birth, um, just that, you know, midwifery has moved away from you know, perhaps something that was more supportive in the past. Um, although a lot of this is, um, maybe not, I mean, I'd be curious what you think. I feel like a lot of it's newer knowledge, especially some of the science we know now around some of the healing stuff. But, um, but I would totally admit that I am not well-versed in, um, like holistic pelvic care and, and those sorts of things. And I'd love to hear from you, like what, you know, for people that are listening, either who, are looking for someone to do this sort of care for them um, or birth workers who are listening and want to learn more about how they could be offering this to their community. Like what are some resources? I know you do some trainings. Yeah. So I have a school with my mentor. My mentor is Ellen Heed and our school is called the stream school. And it's, it's going to be like, we've taught in Australia, we've taught in um, England, but this, year 2018 is the first time we're teaching in the states so it's a comprehensive training in how to work with these four domains of health and we have acupuncturists midwives doulas pre and postnatal yoga teachers Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't have any obs yet um someday right and some rolfers yeah and so i mean the idea is that every woman pregnant or not pregnant should have access to holistic pelvic and gynecological care. And so um, honestly, what we find with midwives a lot of the times is that they don't want to confront their own shame matrix. They don't want to be the ones receiving the work. And it's, it's a, that is a, it's, we don't allow people into our training that aren't willing to, there's a prerequisite for midwives that's called exiting the shame matrix. And without um, confronting some of our own sexual shame, that's sort of the foundation of the training that we offer because it's from there that we're actually able to hold the space in a way that we can hear what we need to hear. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Cause that's sounds super intriguing. Yeah. And then um, I think that midwives in particular are, I mean, I'd love to hear. Your I think because midwives are in, are used to being in the position of authority and most midwives, most midwives. Yeah. I mean, I don't know all midwives, but I, and actually this, this observation isn't exclusively my observation, but my mentor taught a workshop 
only to midwives. And um, she's very skeptical when midwives apply to our training because she's always like they usually come from a place of knowing and um, and I, and I have also taught a workshop on postpartum movement and one of the midwives that came didn't do any of the movement herself. She just watched it. And then when I said, I said, well, you need to experiment with it. So you feel it in your own body so that then you could teach it. And she's like, no, I'm here to learn from my clients. And I was like, yeah, that's fascinating. And I feel like it's something that we deal with a lot around, I mean, in other, other contexts too, whether it's like nutrition or whatever it is, like people that don't want to, yeah, I'd be, yeah, I'll have to think more on that. But yeah, I mean, what I'm teaching is and is coming from an embodiment perspective, right? Like I'm a somatic educator. Ultimately, that's what I am. I'm a practitioner. I work with people. I do hands in, hands on pelvic floor work. I work anally and vaginally to heal scar tissue, birth injuries, gynecological damage, surgeries, ovarian cysts, hysterectomies, prostate stuff. Um, but ultimately, it's coming from a perspective that I've also done my own work and continue to do it. So I don't give people advice that I don't actually take or that I actually haven't done myself. I mean, there's some advice like I don't have a prostate, so I'm not doing my – but whatever protocols I'm saying analogous to what I need to do in terms of detoxing my body or um, like I'm never going to tell somebody about nutrition that I'm not actually applying, right? So – yeah. Um, and it come, and the reason that what we do works is because of that, because we're able to hold that space and we're living what it is that we're teaching. But I, I want to go back and, and that's not even coming from a, like that. It sounds a little bit self-righteous. It's really not about that. It's about a level of integrity in yeah. what you're offering. And, just and reality, you know, like, I feel like that's a, we we're constantly trying to deconstruct the idea that the midwife is above the birthing woman. Like we're all on the same. Right. And that's very much our model is, is a peer based model so that when you're coming to talk to someone, yes, they are the expert, but they're reflecting your situation back to you as in a very human, non authoritative way. Because if we replicate that dynamic, we're just replicating exactly what we're trying to get the person out of. Most of the people who are coming to me are coming to me because at some point they were helpless in some situation, whether that was a birth or a sexual trauma. And to reconstruct that helplessness, it doesn't help for me to take a position of authority and tell somebody what to do. So um, even though many people want you to tell them what to do. So it's a bit of a, um, you know, a dance to try to educate and reconstruct that dynamic. But I want to go back to something you said, because I think it's really important. And I, and I, it's also up for me because I just went to Brazil. Brazil's where I had my baby. My midwife's in Brazil. Um, you know, I feel like a memoir writer who's like wrote about their mom and doesn't want their mom to read the book or they're afraid that their mom's going to do it. I already gave a, a presentation when I was two years postpartum. I went to a birth conference in Rio and I presented as a mother. So I, I felt like these birth conferences, they don't have actually moms talking from a stakeholder perspective. They don't have moms talking from their experience. I was already a body worker and a yoga teacher, so I did have some knowledge, but I wasn't coming there as a professional. And I presented about my experience, and my midwives were horrified because I described my tear as a stage four tear. And they came, one of them came up to me afterwards and said, you absolutely did not have a stage four tear. 
you had a stage two tear. And I said, but how did I have all these symptoms then? How did I have fecal incontinence with a stage two tear? How did I have like searing lower back and SI joint pain with a stage two tear? She said, well, we used a material to suture you that we had never used on anybody. And it was recommended to us by a gynecologist and your body rejected it. And so it didn't heal well. Well, there's a difference between scar tissue and adhesions. So it's, it's possible that I had a stage two tear repair and then the adhesion just grew along a, like a force vector line. But both Ellen, who was my practitioner and now is my mentor and co-teacher, mm-hmm. we felt it. It went all the way back to my anal sphincter. I could feel it. So I know that that's what happened. Right. Um, but there's such a big... Uh, they felt very betrayed that I would express an experience less than perfect as home birth midwives, which I understand because in Brazil, like in many places, home births are home birth midwives are under threat. Like it's not like they're secure in their place. There's a lot of controversy if it's legal, not legal, all that stuff. But as a person receiving care, I'm like, I don't have, to, I'm not going to be a part of this conspiracy that feigns that there's perfection in birth. There is no perfection. And I never blamed them. And I don't blame them. I don't think that something wrong happened. I don't think like, oh, I didn't deserve that. I just think I could have gotten better care. But that's also part of my story. It's part of how this book even came to be. So I don't, I don't regret it even. I just look at it and go, okay. So my last night in Rio, I was in, I was in Brazil for a month. Uh, we went to the beach. We came back. It was like 10 o'clock at night. I had a 6 a.m. flight. We went out to have pizza. We're in the restaurant. I walk in and I walk smack into my midwife. Whoa. And I, the last day of my trip. And I'm like, whoa, weird. And so, you know, I gave her a hug and we talked and I said, yeah, I finished the book. And she's like, yeah, I heard. And my book's getting translated into Portuguese. And so now she's really, I mean, she can read English, but now she's really going to see what I said. And Again, it's like standing in my experience, also knowing that her, I, her perspective on my birth is probably completely different than mine. Sure. You know, she told me after the birth that I was, it was one of the hardest ones she'd ever done. And I was like, really? she told me that I was hard at first. And I'm like, really? And because I didn't ask for any help at all. Like I, I was like doing it myself. And she said, yeah, well, um, it was the dynamic with my ex-husband that was really challenging because he was really afraid and she was having to kind of like physically keep him out of the room. And um, anyway, you know, we all are going to have our own birth stories and our own perceptions, but I definitely feel like there's a lot of pressure on women. Um, like to, later today, I'm going to speak at a conference that's about birth trauma And most of the stories, the questions that they've submitted to us already are all about like, how do I let go of not having had the perfect birth that I wanted? How do I let go of not having had the home birth? How do I let go of, um, you know, different birth outcomes? So uh, to me, it's not about, I, and by the way, I love midwives. I like, I'm fascinated by midwives. I like watch midwife video clips when I need like feminine hits. So I, I'm not saying that I, (laughs) excuse me, Um, it's more 
that just like you all, I'm trying to figure out how can we repair this part of our cultural fabric that um, it's too much to expect that only midwives can do it. Right. Like midwives, I mean, you have to make a living. To make a living, you have to do at least a couple births a month. That means you're on call almost all the time. Um, it's natural that the crest of the wave, which is the birth, is where the most of your energy is going to go. And then that wave starts to drop off. So the question is, how as a culture can we repair that time and not expect just the care providers to do it? Because, um, and that's really what the book is about. The book is about how can I be a good aunt? How can I be a good sister? And sometimes I give talks and people are just bereft. They're like, oh my God, I'm like the worst person ever. I would bring like a stuffed animal and a bouquet of flowers and I should have been doing laundry, you know? And I'm like, yeah, start. Well, and I feel like I hear that a lot from moms um, that have just had their first baby. They're like, oh, now I realize what I should have been doing for all those other people. And how can we know though when we don't live in, you know, the village setting and we aren't, you know, exposed to tons of people um, having babies and family members having babies and, and we've lost that, you know, the traditional aspects that, you know, you talk about in your book. Um, Rochelle Garcia Saliga is a really great example of someone else doing beautiful work around this. She spoke at our first conference um, in 2016. Um, we also had a panel of moms at that conference. So, um, because that's something else we totally uh, have in common is that hearing from women about their experiences, even when it's hard, you know, as, as a midwife is really important. And how are we going to do a better job if we're not listening? listening? Right. Women. And there is no perfection. Right. Exactly. So it's that's part of the humanness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um yeah. So I'm trying to think what I mean, I had so many things I wanted to talk about. Um I'm trying to think where to go next, but um I was wondering what your thoughts are on pelvic floor work during pregnancy, because I know that that's sort of like a controversial thing. Um, that yeah. I honestly haven't spent a ton of time researching on my own. So, Well, I developed this process called the birth rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think as long as someone has a low-risk birth and they're cleared for sex, um, then pelvic floor work should be fine and helpful for a lot of people. So I do this process called the birth rehearsal. I had somebody, it was really cool. Yesterday someone came and um, she's, she's 39 weeks. And I saw her two years ago when she was having her first baby. And she came back because she said it was just such a helpful experience for her during the birth process. It, she really was able to stay way more present because she felt internal pressure sensations that she hadn't felt before in the birth rehearsal. So I basically help people feel rectal pressure and vaginal pressure. I touch their cervix so they just know where their cervix is because a lot of people just know their cervix to be this uncomfortable thing that gets scraped. And so just kind of like light contact. Then I show them, like I, I, you know, I start with just two fingers and then eventually for some people I get my whole fist in and that I show them, you know, it's like not that much smaller than a baby's head and then their tissue goes back together. So that's not for everybody because not everyone, um, you know, I'm not doing, the process isn't about like a goal. The process is about bringing more awareness, clearing out any fear or any like holding that's in the musculature. The process is not comfortable. 
and people are usually surprised because, you know, we do, it's hard for people to get out of the magical child of like, I want the orgasmic birth and I'm just going to do hypnobirthing. And with the hypnobirthing, it's just not going to be painful and it's going to be short because I decide it's going to be short. Yeah, and so, yeah. So when they come in for the rehearsal, they're kind of like, whoa, like that's uncomfortable. And I'm like, yes, it's yeah. uncomfortable. And it's like nothing you've ever felt. And so they just kind of have a chance and in the birth rehearsal, they can say, say, I want to pause now or I want, you know, but I help them surf the waves of like a lot of intensity. Okay, bring your awareness there. Go inside, breathe. What's it like now? Okay, now do this, you know, and give them, help them realize just how their system works. And then I do it a lot with VBACs too, just because um, I help people with their cesarean scar tissue and then um, just confidence developing and honestly a lot of the people that come for those are recommended by midwives or doulas either because they have some specific kind of holding pattern or fear in the and their doula is kind of like you may need a little bit more like touch work and so they often have great birth teams so it's often a time for me to reinforce and reassure them like you've got such a great team you're working with the best doctor there is you know and just sort of like another person that's they're reflecting to them that they're safe and that, um, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's come up more for me in the past year. I mean, this is my first year in practice as a, a midwife out on my own. Um, and I've worked with a lot of first-time moms and definitely had a few um, that ended in cesarean or, you know, whatever, or long labors. Um, I had a long labor myself. Um, I was at a five day one earlier, which is why I laughed when you said two or three days. Cause I was like, that's what I thought too. And then there was a five day one. So, um, and, and yeah. And then afterwards, you know, I'm working with really amazing conscious women and some of them have said, you know, I feel like I just had a lot of fear that I didn't even know about until I actually was starting to feel that pressure and started to wonder if I could actually fit a baby through there and if I could handle that, those sensations. So that sounds like a really amazing offering. Yeah. Rehearsal sessions. Um, yeah, I'm excited to. And also because I wasn't aware that, you know, the re one of the, re everyone says, well, why did you tear? You know, but who knows? But one of the reasons is because I had a hypertonic pelvic floor because I was a long time yoga practitioner. And I didn't realize that there are some, there's research on like, predisposing factors for tearing and it's horseback riding um bar method class well that's not part of the research but basically pilates anything that's midline squeezing ballet and yoga and so all of the people who have that as part of their history definitely need to do you know there's the epino do you know about the epino yeah yeah, yeah. but it's illegal in the u.s and it's kind of hard to get Will you tell us about it, though? Oh, yeah. So an EpiNo is a German product. It stands for no episiotomy, and it's very simple, basically mechanical object. It's a, um, it's a pump, so you have a little balloon, and then you pump it, and it expands, and you do it over three weeks of time so that slowly you go centimeter by centimeter, and by the end, the balloon's at 10 centimeters, and so you can see how your tissues expand to that um, circumference and then go back. So it's a graduate, it's basically like a pelvic floor trainer stretcher device. But because I used to sell them in Brazil, um, because they're illegal here, it just was like, it just kind of dawned on me, well, why not have a human replacement for that anyway? Like, it just makes sense. Right. I mean, I can't replace 
10, 21 days of doing that, but, um, but I can do things that the epino can't do, which is like track nervous system reactions and do trauma re, you know, resignify trauma. Yeah. I'd be curious, like what percentage you feel like that work is as far as like, like what percentage is physical and structural, like, Oh, you're tight here or you've got, you know, this going on or scar tissue versus the emotional piece. Like, and maybe that's too hard to like give it Yeah. Yeah, you and you can't separate those things because the tension is a kind of sympathetic nervous system response usually, and so like sympathetic responses is you know muscle tissue and parasympathetic is usually smooth muscle tissue. So, um, I mean, for some people, very rarely it's just a purely physical thing, but for most people, there's a whole lot of other stuff that's going on at the same time. And even, even when it's happening on, with someone who feels like they're pretty resolved, it's, it's still, there's still waves of emotion of, you know, second birth, remembering what it's like and being like, oh my God, I'm so excited, but holy shit too, I know what I'm getting into. And, you know, yeah. when you have contact in that territory, it's like, whoa, right, we're doing this again. Yeah. Um, I'd be so curious if you feel like you've seen either, cause I know you've traveled a lot and lived in different places. Like, have you seen communities that are doing this right? And have you seen, um, maybe even just individuals who've done a really stellar job implementing these ideas in their own postpartum? For sure. Um, lots of individuals who have this knowledge who are able to have like a postpartum doula live with them for the first six weeks. I mean, that's like ideal. Then people who have decided like they've sent out instead of doing the food train, they've done like a friend train so that they have a new friend coming in town every four or five days staying at their house. Like, um, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's what I would do if I had, a, I would like to do both if I had another baby, but yeah. um yeah, I really recommend for people who are like, oh, I can't afford that. I can't do that. I would recommend just one day a week for three hours. You know, it, I would think like if I knew that I had someone every Friday coming that was going to make, you know, two great meals, give me a bodywork treatment, make sure that I had that I did steaming or a sitz bath and I could take a shower and be swaddled by the time they left. I mean, that would just be so relaxing to know and be able to count on that you know I think it's very important just like a baby needs that consistency the mom needs that to know okay there's going to be some someone coming just for me just for this part of things yeah that's a beautiful idea um did you so you were already doing yoga stuff when you had your baby did you have any I guess I'm curious which of these things were you implementing or were you really not implementing like any of them your first go round? Like oil massage and <laughs> I didn't know anything. Anything? Okay. I didn't know anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't even I I thought I had a sling in my breast and I was good to go. Right. I didn't know anything. Right. That's why I was so shocked. I was just like I had my mom, I had my baby at 42 weeks and five days. So my mom came to town at 40 weeks. And so she could only stay. She's already passed how long she was going to stay. So she can only stay for like eight more days. And then my 
ex-husband's parents came for like seven days and I wasn't even up and walking by the time they left. And then I was alone with a partner who worked nights and slept during the day. And I was like, I didn't, I couldn't get to the grocery store. I wasn't eating enough. I mean, I didn't know anything. I don't think I even did. I had a bidet. I think I like used the bidet in the house because it was Brazil. Um, yeah. No, I, I mean, that's why, like I said, my experience on the spectrum is like so on the challenging side that that's why I was able to come and experience how, I mean, I was a pretty informed person. I had a bodywork practice and me with all this information didn't even know where to go to get the information I needed. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I hear a lot of like similar threads in my own story. Um, with, I have a three and a half year old and, um, you know, I was already a student midwife and had been to 40 births by the time I had her and, um, had studied the postpartum and all of it. And, you know, I had this idea of how it was going to go and, uh, we had a really hard time too. And, um, if I have another, I'll be doing it differently. But, you know, I even, I think I had, um, I had at least one Ayurvedic oil massage from a really amazing woman who had studied with, um, is Aisha? Aisha? Uh, Aisha. Yeah. Um, and is pretty intimately connected in that world. And I did have a meal train and, you know, but we had really bad nursing problems, like struggled terribly with nipple issues and she had a tongue tie that we eventually had advised. And so, yeah, I came out of that time, um, feeling, you know, similarly, like, you know, our greatest pain can be our greatest, um, offering and, uh, the wounded healer, the whole thing. And, uh, I wrote an article, uh, maybe I'll post it underneath this on the website said something like reflections on the fourth trimester, get me off this yoga ball, something like that. Cause my baby just wanted me to bounce on the yoga ball all day, like literally six hours or more a day. And I had a minor tear, but I was like bouncing on a yoga ball with it. And, and my partner worked during the day and he was gone 12 hours a day. And yeah, so it was just, you know, I feel like that's a huge thing for me. I think you mentioned it in your book too, just like, how do we educate people and inform them without terrifying them? <laughs> right. <laughs> it was like, because not everyone has a, a super challenging postpartum and if, especially if they have some more support. And, um, right. But I think what people don't understand is like, in my opinion, and I'm talking mostly about white American culture. Cause that's what I'm, I mean, I'm a part of a lot of different parts of this culture in our country, but we're already living in a, pretty pathological environment. Like it's not normal to live separate from other humans that you're not touching and being around and laughing with and cooking with. Like, so we're already at a bit of a deficit. And then the postpartum time just like peels, peels it off and, and shows that because really no, no woman should be alone with a baby for more than a couple hours at a time. Mm-hmm. You just shouldn't like, even if it's just somebody else, another adult in the house, it's not even like it's just there writing or typing or working or reading. It's like you need other people around. Right. That can be your postpartum plan. How do I have other people in my house? You know, yeah. some people say, oh, I don't want that because I'll lose my privacy and I really want to do, you know, how many people say, oh, no, I want it to just be us because I don't really like the way my parents did things. And so I'd rather it just be our thing. 
Yeah. Or I feel like a lot of the discussion as I was pregnant and thinking about this was like, oh, it's a sacred time and it's just for the family to bond. And that very much, and my partner was home for two weeks, I think. And, um, you know, and I had Marin there. She was in town and that was amazing, but she had how many, she had six kids at the time too. And, um, so she visited me when she could, but it was like, yeah, I sort of had this romanticized, and I talk about this in the articles that I've written and, and other podcasts I've done, so I won't blab on too much about it, but, you know, this romanticized vision of me just, like, nursing and, like, eating dates and, like, um, everything was great and my baby would be just calm and adorable and she was, like, not, like, and even calm, adorable babies, you know, are hard. So, yeah, I feel like it was a really interesting realization to me. And I wrote about that in the, in another one of my posts, just like, so the friend train idea is very exciting to me because I thought like, if I could just have a human to talk to that spoke English and could hear what I was going through and help me sort through these weird foggy thoughts around all of it, that would have been so helpful. Um, so I had a friend, have a friend who had a baby like 10 months before I did. And she had an Ayurvedic postpartum doula, but she's, um, Argentinian and she was living in the States and I remember at the time I would go over to her house a lot and she would love it when I was over but I sort of felt like oh I'm kind of dropping by too much and I don't want to bother her kind of thing and if I knew what I know now I would have moved into her house yeah I would have just told her hey I'm gonna come stay for a few weeks because I mean, being Argentinian already and someone used to like such a close family culture and her parents couldn't come at the time because her mom was having surgery. It was like, that's what she needed. And even though she, she did have an Ayurvedic doula, but you know, the person came three times a week. It was like, she needed somebody just there all the time, keeping her company and being a part of it together. Not this thing of like, oh yeah, we bought a, it's a, I'm a badass because I'm doing it by myself. Totally. Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, I didn't get to stay for a super long time, but Marin had her uh, most recent baby in March, uh, right after our conference. So, um, and I had scheduled the trip out there kind of around when she was going to have her baby. And we thought she was going to have her baby more at the end of my three weeks. And she ended up having her baby more at the beginning of the three weeks. So I, and I stay, I stay in her house when I'm there and it's so much fun. I'm going again at the end of the month um, with my three and a half year old for four weeks this time. Oh, wow. So it's just like, yeah. Get out of the cold weather. Yes. To get out of the cold weather, go to some births with her. And, um, but when I was there for her birth, it was really neat. And she said that too. She's like, oh, I'm so glad we got to have time. Like it would have been nice to like get stuff done or whatever before the baby came. Cause we are always doing stuff. Um, but it was really nice to have me around I think for for that and she did something interesting with her um her baby ever who is around the same age as my daughter she's a little older she did uh instead of a meal train because they have so many people in their family it was like it just felt silly to have people bring that much food um and and other reasons but she did a like a housework train where someone every day for the first I want to say three or four weeks um, came over for an hour and just did the stuff that she prioritized, like throw some, throw a freezer meal into the crock pot or whatever, do a quick vacuum, um, that kind of stuff. 
clean off the counters yeah every day for for a while so that was really cool um yeah so yeah wise oh yeah i wrote that down wise woman in the house would have helped me immensely because you have a section on that and i wrote so lonely because it was it was like i you know i had two losses before i had my daughter and so i kind of like I put a lot on her like you're gonna be like my baby and we're gonna be in love and we'll be enough for each other and why would I ever want anyone else around when I have you now was sort of like the feeling and you know that wasn't fair of me to, <laughs> to put that on her or um, yeah so now I know better for people out there thinking that they just want to be alone for six weeks or more yeah, yeah. well cool um, what else should we talk about? I think you wanted to talk about sexuality or some aspect of it. Yeah, I loved what, let me see what I dog-eared in here. Oh, first, if I could show this really cool illustration. Um, you talked really eloquently, and I feel like probably the best uh, I've read as far around, like, the energetic body and again this is something that I think about and that I dabble in but it's not something I've spent near enough time thinking about and learning about um, and so I really loved what you wrote and I really especially loved these this illustration so if you want to tell people like what it is they're seeing there uh, yeah so the illustration is about how the energetic system changes as we give birth and then after we give birth and that really came out of my own personal experience and what it felt like for me and then watching other women go through it and number one revelation is oh i'm a woman my energetic body is different than a man's because i had been in spiritual practices where the energetic body was neutral like it's energy so it doesn't have a gender but in fact, what I learned through the experience is, no, the energetic body of a woman does function differently. And um, as I've learned even more reading books like Hilary Hart's book, Body of Wisdom, where she incorporates a lot of different cultural um, understanding, including Chinese medicine, is like there, there is even chakra system in the breasts that like the breasts have their own specific energetic qualities. But these illustrations that you show, showed were in the birth, the I call it the hourglass. So the energetic, if we think of just sort of the alignment of the chakras, normally it would be just, you know, a vertical tube. And in this way, it um, is like an hourglass where we get very open cosmically on at the crown and we get very open at the bottom. And then the process of recovery is going from this hourglass back into kind of a seed pod so that our, there's a return of our solar plexus energy, our personal power, and a sealing of the cosmic and um, root energy. Yeah, I thought it was just a really beautiful um, – yeah, I just felt like it – it gave words and an image to something that I've felt as a midwife and – um, mm. it's a really, you know, obviously I think a lot about birth and pregnancy and the postpartum, but, um, yeah, it just was really beautiful to see the seed pod too. Cause I feel like I've not, uh, had a way to think about that. And, you know, what, even just the image of it makes you, I feel like 
feel what that person might need to then nourish that that energy as opposed to that openness like the closed water yeah. you know all the things that you talk about in your book um that are important so um yeah but yeah I would love I mean I guess that's a good um good segue into this other topic around like sex and sexuality um because I mean to me that seed pod doesn't look like uh the root energy is really the focus right like Mm. And so, like, how do we go from that back into finding our sexuality? And as you talked about, like, and I really love the letter. Let's see, what page was that on? Um, it was on page 240, like, the write, write a letter to your partner. I like both of them, but the from a new mom and uh, how, and I don't know if this is a real letter or a hypothetical letter, but this feeling of, like, oh, I feel like a virgin. I'm not sure who I am sexually. And you talked really eloquently, I feel like, about the, uh, the Madonna, like, all of this, the, the cultural stuff, and, like, moms aren't supposed to be sexy, and, like, how do we create something new after we've, our identity has shifted so hugely, and so, um, I felt like your exercises in here were really cool, like, the how to create and maintain closeness with your partner, and, uh, your, what was it called, the three, the three-minute game, those were all really fun. So I don't know if you want to just share your perspective on this. Cause I think it's something that, um, I, I feel like midwives could be doing a much better job talking about rather than just like at your six week visit, which I just had one the other day with somebody. Um, I'm just going to start thinking about having sex again, you know, and like, what's, how are you feeling about that? And, um, here's what you might want to expect. And here's some things we want to think about. And, you know, I do, a uh, okay job I think but I could do a much better job and I loved I loved what you wrote so I'd love to hear from you just what you would want to share with people around that Mm -hmm. well for me the postpartum time is really and I and I got this term from Laura Gutman who wrote um it's this it's a book in Spanish but the English translation is motherhood coming face to face with your own shadow where she really talks about the feminization of sex And we're kind of living in a cultural moment where that's beginning to happen as well. But the postpartum time can be shocking for women because for everyone, because if we've adapted to hard and fast penetration, which most people have, because that's the image of great sex that we've been given through pornography and that's endorphin based sex. So there's a chemical component to that as well. Then And when penetration is our definition of sex, which is, you know, already heteronormative and, um, you know, fairly linear that, you know, also has to have an outcome in order to be successful. So it's not sex if if there's not ejaculation or it's not sex if it's not, if if people didn't quote unquote finish. Um, The postpartum time is really a time to reevaluate that and really put female pleasure at the center because... Most women aren't, maybe mentally they're drawn to penetration because they remember how that would feel or they want that feeling, but their body is not actually really wanting that. And there's obviously fear because you're giving up the identity of what you were before and then whatever other ideas are floating around in there about 
you know, I'm not going to be as tight as I was before or, oh my God, I feel so much tighter. What the fuck happened? Um, but all of the ways that we need to slow down because the postpartum time is already a very slow time. So what happens is that women start to develop almost an aversion because the way that their partner is approaching them is from that old place and then there's not really time for floor play, there's, which I don't even like that word, but there's not time for any other kind of touch. So it's like, oh, get out of the shower, let's have a quickie. And no one's really up for quickies postpartum. So it's really an opportunity to widen the scope of what sex and intimacy can be. And it can be very interesting and creative and sweet, but a lot of people have never communicated about sex before. And so it's a bit of a harsh reality in the midst of such a strong identity transition to then have to learn how to communicate about that, which is why I included sort of samples in the book of how that might look. And ideally that would start earlier so that it would be easier to draw upon. And that's why the earlier intimacy and relationship check-ins are earlier on in the book. Yeah. Ideally, you know, I'm sure you would probably agree. Ideally young women would be right. this way before pregnancy was even a thing. Right. Um, but you know, obviously we don't all have that, um, that experience. So yeah, it was, that was really helpful. And I like that you said, slow it down. And I want, have you ever, has anyone in the sex world and sexuality world made a comparison with like the slow food movement? Yeah. Know. Yeah. There's a book called slow sex. There oh. might even be a couple of them, but um, one of them is slow sex by Nicole Daydone, who is the founder of one taste and orgasmic meditation. Yeah. And originally I had orgasmic meditation in the book because I feel like that's a great postpartum practice. It's just, I do, I mention it, but I don't describe how to do it. Originally I gave like a detailed description of like how to do the practice, but I realized that it wasn't, it was sort of halfway between not enough information to really, because in order to do it, you, you don't want it to just be like another frustrating thing that didn't go well. Right. So um, I figured it's better if people get actual coaching on it and read the book. Um, but I, yeah, I do mention it because I feel like it's, it's a clitoral focused practice. So it takes penetration off the table and it puts the woman in the role of receiving. And at a time, you know, that's another thing. If women have framed sex as something that it's, that they're giving, yeah. then they're like, Oh, I'm touched out. I don't want to give anymore. But it's like, but what are you receiving from sex? Mm-hmm. that's the sex that you want to go towards. What is the sex that you could have that would be the thing that makes you not so tired, the thing that makes you excited, the thing that, that connects you to your partner. So, Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's funny. In the last couple of weeks I've been, um, and I don't know what made me think of it, but I've been thinking I want to make like a series of memes or articles or something around slow midwifery. So like a similar, like, just slowing things down. And so that's a cool, a cool connection, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And are there more resources? You have some classes online? Maybe I do. Yeah. I have a few classes. I have one that's called activate your inner Jaguar. That one was, um, 
really inspired by the Me Too movement and by a video that I made about that that 18,000 people watched. And um, it's about getting out of the predator-prey dynamic and freeing yourself from that because at the foundation, that's really what oftentimes gets activated during birth as well. Um, and so I learned in my office as I was working with women that when we would start to play predator-prey dynamics, I assumed that because many of them had been victims or prey before that they would want to be the predator. But in fact, they were terrified to be the predator and they want their body would physically take them into prey positions. And so it, the, I developed an online course that, um, that would allow women to both understand what's happening in the nervous system when the, you know, those dynamics are in play but also how to reclaim our own power in a healthy way. So there's that course. There's one called Sex and Unpacking the Suitcase of Sex, Sex in Your Nervous System. Okay. Um, there's one called Forging a Feminine Path, uh, an embodied conversation of sexuality and spirituality. Cool. And I'm just about to teach one starting next week that's called Mother Code that's about um, – our identity, physical identity, spiritual identity, sexual identity as mothers. Cool. What are you doing that all through MAGA Mama or? Yeah. Okay. And are they online? Uh, yeah, they're all online. Yeah. I mean, I teach lots of classes in person, but those are the um, online classes. Um, I'm not sure they're on my website right now though. So someone could just write in through the contact form or it's, it's on my Instagram and on my Facebook. Okay. Very cool. That's awesome. And then I feel like right before we started recording, you said something cool that I'd love to, to go back to. And maybe it's my last thing on my list, but um, yeah, just like how some of the principles from your book apply to, to birth workers too, and their sort of shot nervous systems. Mm. Well, I think what I was saying was really that I hope that a lot of birth workers will want to do this work, which is, which is analogous with well women, woman care, which I know that you're passionate about too. Um, I'm passionate about getting the general population to even know that well women care exists, number one. But number two, that midwives would have an option for periods of their life when maybe attending births is not what their adrenals is, is really, are really up for, mm -hmm. that they could be well-paid and having great work to do um, outside of just attending births. Right. Which is one of our intentions for founding the school. But also, of course, just like we were talking about earlier in terms of embodied living, that all of these, I mean, the five universal principles that I define in the book, which are rest, uh, nourishing food, loving touch, the presence of wise women in contact with nature, that's just kind of a recipe for good living right? It's just kind of a recipe for overall health. It's just that in this specific period of time, it's imperative. We can't get away with not doing it. Totally. We cannot get away with not doing it. Perfect. Well, anything else you want to share before we wrap up? I don't think so. Okay. Cool. Well, Thank you so much again for, for joining me and letting me uh, talk about this and pick your brain a little bit. And um, 
yeah, I'll try and include a bunch of uh, links to some of the stuff that we've referenced in this hour or so um, underneath the podcast when we put it out. And definitely a link to your website, which again is MAGA Mom. Will you spell it just for people that are? M-A-G-A-M-A-M-A dot com. Cool. Um, awesome. So yeah, and I'll be definitely looking through some of your awesome offerings for my own personal use too. So I'm excited to, to check that out. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And uh, thanks everyone for listening or watching and uh, check back for future episodes with more awesome women. 